John 1, 14 to 18. The title of my sermon is God's Glory Revealed. And here's the big idea. Here's, here's the major theme in our text. Here's the focus. In Christ, the grace and truth God is revealed. In Christ, the grace and truth of God have been revealed. Amen? So behold and believe. That's the series title, and I'll, you'll see why as we move through John's gospel. One of the major themes is witness and testimony, right? There are multiple witnesses in John's gospel to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we are meant to behold Christ in John's gospel and to believe, to trust in him and who he is and what he's done. I remember as a kid... And it's funny, the older you get, the harder it can be to remember sometimes. But when I was a kid, one of the more popular question and answer games was if you could spend a day with anyone, somebody famous, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Who's ever played that game? You could have a meal with them, you could spend the day with them, who would it be and why? Now, kids, when they hear this question... I think, immediately begin to think about how wonderful it would be to spend time, a day, with maybe their favorite athlete or artist or maybe some great leader or inventor. Now, the reason this game is so much fun is because it's so out there. It's untouchable. It's fun to imagine the impossible, right? I'm sure if you're married, you and your wife have said, can you imagine if we inherited a million dollars today? Or if we could go anywhere on vacation next weekend, where would we go? And we know we can't just drop everything and go, but we like to imagine such things. When those questions are posed, especially to children, their imaginations run wild and they begin to daydream. Now here's what's incredible. It shouldn't surprise you. What's incredible is that we can know, we can know, we can know the creator of the universe. We can know the savior of the world. And this is not sheer idealism. It's real. It's true. It's experiential. We can behold the king of the universe in the word of God. We can get to know him through scripture and through prayer. Do we truly grasp this incredible honor? to commune with the King in His Word. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word so that we might know Him. And we can. Amen? We can. That's why we're here. You know, we've, we've already covered kind of the, the introductory matters of John's Gospel. I want you to chew on something else, though. I'm going to argue that John, when compared to the other Gospels, is by far the most theological, meaning it teaches us the most about God, namely his character and what he's like. It teaches us, John's gospel, the most about salvation, where it comes from, how it's accomplished, received, how it's applied. It teaches us the most about Jesus, his identity, his attributes. That's not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not theological, far from it. I'm just saying that John is more theological. It's the most unique of all the Gospels in its theological emphasis. 
Notice how our passage is framed. This is the end of John's prologue. The prologue, if you remember, is going to introduce us to major themes to come, major characters in the gospel. It prepares us for what lies ahead. And if you read carefully, you'll notice how the prologue is framed, but not even that, just how our passage is framed. Verses 14 and 18. Here's what we have. When you compare 14, verse 14, which is the first verse in our text, to verse 18, here's what we see. The incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, the source of Christ, namely where the Son of God comes from in the revelation of Christ. So again, our passage is framed around the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, the source of Christ, and the revelation of Christ. Now listen, verse 14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow! And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This echoes what we saw last week in verse 9 we talked about divine initiative, the fact that the true light was coming into the, coming into the world. The Father sent the Son, and the Son became man. Huh, those are some of the greatest words you'll ever hear, amen? The Father sent the Son, and the Son became man? Are there any greater words than these in all of Scripture? There lies our hope. The Father sent the Son, and the Son became man. Now, before we jump in, I want to shed light on one more item, if you'll permit me. John uses specific language in our passage, verses 14 to 18 of chapter 1, to draw our attention to a major theme in his gospel, the theme of witness and revelation. Can I get a witness? Can I hear witness? Can you say witness? Okay, revelation. All right, hold on to that. We're going to revisit that. The gospel, think about this. The gospel happened in time and in space. The events of the gospel were witnessed. Oh, the incarnation, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus were all seen. We are privy. We are privy to this eyewitness testimony in Scripture. That is an honor, friends. Now listen to John's language in our passage. Again, witness and revelation, a major theme being brought to light in our text. In verse 14, we have seen. We've seen. We've seen. In verse 15, John bore witness about him. And finally, in verse 18, he, the Word, the Son of God, Jesus, has made him, the Father, known. So let's just summarize that. John, the beloved disciple, has seen the glorious revelation of God in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist bore witness about John. We have that in Scripture. Amen? And Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, the light, He came to make God known. 
You know, we see similar language. Oh, here it is. Okay, so I know, I know the adult Bible study on Wednesday nights. They've been wondering, where's Chris going next? We did Proverbs. What's next? First John. We're going to be in First John, which I think goes well with John. So we'll be in First John. But we have similar language. This theme of witness and revelation is also in First John. We have similar language in First John 1, 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. What do we learn about Jesus in our passage? I want us to look at four things. How many? Four things. So buckle up. Here we go. Number one. And it's all about Christ, okay? Every point is going to begin Christ, and then you're going to see what we learn about Christ in our passage. Number one, Christ, the greater tabernacle. Verse 14. This is straight from verse 14. Every point is based on a verse or verses from the text. Okay? We're going to move through it verse by verse. So listen up. Christ, the greater tabernacle, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we begin to see, and you're going to see why I chose John after preaching a year and a half in the book of Exodus. Here we see, in John 1.14, within the prologue, here we see the relationship between John, the Gospel of John, and Exodus begin to come to the surface. Exodus, more than any other book in the Old Testament, paints the backdrop for John's Gospel. Get that. It does. The text literally reads, The Word became flesh. This is verse 14. This is what the literal Greek reads. The Word became flesh and pitched His tabernacle. Pitched His tabernacle among us. Okay, so when you hear the word tabernacle, what book of the Bible do you go to? Where? One more time? Exodus. Okay, good. We're all there. Exodus. This is an intentional echo from the book of Exodus. Oh, this is so good. You ready? What was the purpose? What was the purpose of the tabernacle? What was the purpose? Big tent with a court. What was the purpose? Now, we spent a lot of time talking about this last year in Exodus. A lot of time. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, too much time. No, we didn't. Come on, guys. I want to tell you four things. Four things. Again, the purpose of the tabernacle. What was in the tabernacle, by the way? What did it house? There was, remember, there was two compartments. There was the most holy place and the holy place. What was in the holy place, the most holy place? The what? The Ark of the Covenant, this golden chest. And what was inside? The law. The law. The tabernacle, number one, was the place where God's people met with God and heard his word. That's what you have to remember. The tabernacle was the place where God's people met with God and they heard his what? His word. Okay, come on. Follow me here. Let's go. Number two... The tabernacle was the place where God ruled over his people as king. 
That was the place where it happened. God ruled over his people as king, the tabernacle. Number three, the tabernacle literally was the place where heaven and earth met. Remember, it was his throne. It was his footstool. And finally, the tabernacle was the place of sacrifice. It was where sin was atoned for, where forgiveness was provided. So let's put all this together. Christ, so so again, you'll see the significance of the language that John uses to describe Jesus. And the word became flesh and pitched his tabernacle among us. Why? Why would John say that? Why is John making that connection between Jesus and the Old Testament tabernacle? Here it is. Christ is the greater tabernacle. Now pay attention here. Christ now, everybody say now. Okay, Christ now is the place where we meet with God and hear his word. Christ is the king of kings who rules over his people by his, by his word. Christ is the place where heaven and earth meet. We're going to see that in chapter 1. Christ is the place of sacrifice. Oh, The Old Testament tabernacle was a pointer to the greater tabernacle to come, Jesus Christ. You know, also, and this is dense, but catch it. You're going to hear this a lot. So let me give you a little background here. Seven years ago, I got into two doctoral programs. One was at Midwestern for Ph.D. work in New Testament studies. And you have to basically submit uh, a thesis, right? Here's what I want to write about. Here's my proposal for my dissertation. And it was John's use of Exodus. (laughs) So this is near and dear to my heart, okay? But it's not just Exodus that's in the background. It's also the book of, can you guess? You don't have to. Isaiah. Isaiah. The language of John 1.14 also looks back to Isaiah. And specifically, a major theme in Isaiah, that of the new Exodus. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, talks about a new exodus to come. Why is that significant? What did the old exodus represent? God showing up visibly to not only be with his people, but to do what for his people? To rescue them, to save them, to deliver them. Amen? And what Isaiah says, with one eye on the past, what God did then, he's going to do again in the future. Who's going to bring about the greater rescue Who's going to be with his people again? Say it with me. Christ. Christ. Isaiah prophetically looks ahead to a time of new exodus. When God would once again visit his people, dwell among them, and rescue them. We see this in Isaiah 4, 2-6. Write that down. Go back and read that today. Isaiah chapter 4, 2-6. Read Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, and you'll see that new Exodus theme. It's beautiful. So John, in using this language to describe Jesus, is announcing that the new Exodus has arrived in who? Who? Jesus. All right, so number one, Christ the greater tabernacle. Number two, Christ the sent one. The sent one. Verses 14 and 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the... Came from the Father. He was sent by the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we get to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. 
However, the only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. Where was he? At whose side? The Father's side. And what has he come to do? To make him known. Here we learn of the source of the Son of God. Now, don't be confused. By source, I don't mean that Jesus had a beginning. I mean he's always been with who? The Father. The one who is from the Father was sent by the Father to reveal God, Christ the sent one. Now, what does this teach us about God? The fact that God would make himself known to us. Does he owe us that? Does he owe us that? Answer me that. So because he doesn't owe us that, and yet he gives it freely, shows us what about God? He's what? He's gracious. He's gracious. As we saw last week, Christ, the sent one, teaches us that God takes the initiative to save his people. The Father sends the Son. The Father is loving. Amen? He's loving. He gave, now this is going to get you, okay? It should. It should get you right here. The Father, now listen to this. The Father, he gave up what he treasured most for the sake of our souls. Do you understand that? John uses a word to describe the Son that is so easy to overlook. How is the Son described in verse 14? It's one word. Only. The only Son from the Father. Okay, only. So what? The word only is from the Greek word monogenes. Mono, which means one. But that's not what the word means. It doesn't simply mean only. It means unique, one of a kind. Unique, one of a kind. The father didn't just send his son, friends, but his unique, one of a kind, no one else like him son. Do you get that? When I taught at a Baptist seminary in Africa, I brought a whole suitcase full of books. A separate suitcase. I was going to be there for that year teaching at a seminary, and I knew I needed my books. Okay? I brought a whole suitcase full of books. Some of my best commentaries in theology texts. And I knew, I knew that I would need these books to prepare my lectures and my sermons for that year in Africa. And you know what I intended to do with that suitcase full of books? I intended to leave it there. All of them. All those books I intended to leave there. It was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice. It was a lot of money. These weren't just second-hand books or hand-me-down books. These were books that I had accumulated over years of graduate studies that had aided me so well. However, I felt strongly about leaving those books there. And I did. And it blessed those students dearly. The point is this. Sacrifice is tough. That was difficult. I'd hand a book to a student. He's like, aren't you giving me this? And I'm just, my, my, my knuckles are turning white. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, it was hard. It was a lot of money. I didn't have any money. I, I, I just finished seminary. And now I'm in Africa. And I knew I was going to continue doing ministry. And I mean, again, it had taken a lot of time to accumulate this library. It was tough. It was difficult. Giving up something you love or hold dear is difficult, right? It is. It's not easy. Friends, 
The Father gave up His unique, one-of-a-kind Son for sinners like you and me. There's no greater sacrifice. There's no greater love. Number three, Christ, number one, the greater tabernacle. Christ, number two, the sent one. Number three, Christ, fool. Everybody say fool. Man, he is full of grace and truth. Verses 14 and 16 to 17. Listen to this. You're like, Chris, we've heard verse 14 twice already. Well, let's hear it again. It's God's word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of? See, full of? Grace and truth. And then we get to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Oh, that's so good. Grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Or whom? Jesus Christ. Again, the explicit background here. It's not implicit. It's not subtle. If you know the Old Testament, it is explicit. The explicit background here is the book of Exodus. John points us to something staggering here. Our passage looks back to a major event in Exodus, specifically Exodus 33 to 34. Let me give you some background. What happens in Exodus 32? Oh, it's a day of infamy. It's the golden calf narrative, right? Israel worships a golden calf. They commit idolatry against God. They break commandments one and two. Come on, guys. And that should have been it for Israel. But Moses intercedes. He begs and pleads. God threatens them with, hey, you know what? I'm going to continue to send you on to the promised land, but I'm I'm not going to go with you. And Moses realizes without the presence of God, they're hopeless. And so essentially, Moses prays and God agrees to stay with his people, but Moses asks for like a down payment, if you will. (laughs) A pledge. Show me your glory. Please, God, show me your glory. Show me that you're going to continue to go with us and go before us. And the Lord graciously acquiesces. We're going to read about that in Exodus 33, 18 and 19, and Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Moses said, please, please show me your glory. And he said, I will. (laughs) I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And now we get to chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now let's pause here. It's a lot, okay? But that is the background. That language full of what? Grace and truth. The background is Exodus 33 and 34, where God makes his glory, his goodness, pass before Moses. The Lord, in that passage, equates His glory to His goodness. And His goodness is revealed through His character. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As the glory of God, now here it is, as the glory of God 
passed before Moses, the same glory is now revealed in whom? Did you hear verse 14? We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The same glory that passed before Moses is now revealed through who? Christ. Christ. In Christ, the glory of God is on display. God's goodness as seen in his grace and truth. Again, the time of the new exodus has arrived in Jesus. As God revealed his glory during the first exodus, he would do it again now in the person of Jesus. How are we to understand the phrase, full of grace and truth? It's repeated throughout our passage for emphasis. The words grace and truth correspond to the phrase from Exodus, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So grace and truth corresponds to steadfast love and faithfulness found in Exodus 34.6. The entrance of Jesus, the Word, the light, the Son of God, into the world is evidence of God's grace, His kindness, His love, and His faithfulness to His promises. When we behold Christ, we can say together, God is what? He's good. For the coming of Christ declares God's love and faithfulness to his promises. Now, why is the second term so important? Christ full of what? Grace and? What is it again? It's truth, okay? So why is that second term, truth, so important? The glory of God in Christ is full of truth. Truth comes through Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, he is the true light. Remember, the call of John's gospel is to trust in Jesus. John wants us to see that Jesus is trustworthy. He's faithful. He's worthy of our trust because he's faithful. Trust in Jesus. Why? Why? He's faithful. If you've ever known someone who is consistently faithful, they're honest, they're trustworthy, then you know that through experience they can be what? They can be trusted. When they say something, you're not like, I don't know. You know. When they say something, you believe them. You trust them. When they say something, you believe them. When they say they'll be there, you know they'll be there. When they say they'll do something, you're not waiting around. You're not guessing. You're not second-guessing because of their proven track record They've been trustworthy. You trust them. I think for children, this tends to be mom and dad, right? Mom and dad say something. Kids are like, okay, it's going to happen. John highlights the faithfulness of God in Christ and calls us to entrust ourselves to him, to come under his word, to trust him with our whole hearts. Here's the application. Behold God's grace and truth in Christ and proclaim his goodness. Our devotional time, and I hope you have one, I hope you read and pray daily, our devotional time as believers should be a practice of reading and prayer. And as we read God's word, we respond in what? God talks to us in his word and we talk back and we call that prayer. In his word, we behold God's goodness his grace, and his truth, his faithfulness to his promises. And then we pause, and we thank him in prayer. We praise him in prayer. We rejoice in prayer. Number four, final point. 
Christ, the ultimate revelation of God. Oh, who is the ultimate revelation of God? Christ. Verses 14 to 15 and verse 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And then verse 18 one more time. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. A major theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is divine revelation. God reveals himself to his creation. And we say what? Thank you. Thank you. So theologians speak of two types of revelation. There's general revelation, which refers to God's revealing of himself, his revelation through what he's made, through creation. God has revealed himself, his law, who he is through his creation. That's general revelation. And then there's special revelation. And this refers primarily to God's revelation of himself and his plan of redemption through his what? Through his word. And we see examples of both of these in Scripture. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Is that general or special? If general is God's revelation of himself through creation, Psalm 19.1 is general. And then we have Hebrews 1, 1, 2, and 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, oh, so good, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does this teach us about God? Name of the fact that God reveals himself. Again, does he have to reveal himself? Does he owe us revelation? It's grace. So the fact that he does that, number one, he's gracious. Number two, he's generous. And number three, he desires to be known. The fact that God reveals himself reveals three things. He's gracious, he's generous, and he desires to be known. Now, the ultimate or climactic revelation of God is the incarnation of the Son of God, as expressed in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and pitched his tabernacle among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This represents the ultimate moment of divine accessibility. Why can the Lord relate to, now think about this, why can the Lord relate to, identify with, and empathize with his people? Why? Because the Son of God became, became man. The Word became flesh. Recall Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without. Okay, so he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted just like us, yet without sin. We must understand, now this is important, that when Jesus became man, he didn't cease to be who? He didn't cease to be God. As Calvin wrote, 
the Son of God began to be man in such a manner that he still continues to be that eternal word that had no beginning. Well said, John. Well said. The message of the incarnation is part of the scandal of the gospel. You realize the gospel was scandalous in the ancient world. God becoming man? The Greeks had this dualistic belief. They emphasized the goodness of the spiritual realm and the badness of the physical realm. So to to believe or to argue or to tell the story that God took on the physical would have been anathema to the Greeks. They wouldn't have just rolled their eyes. You may have gotten slapped in the face for saying something so blasphemous. But we say, oh, no, 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 this is the good news. We have a God who knows what it's like to suffer, who knows what it's like to feel pain, who can identify with our weaknesses. Amen? Again, I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what are the implications? I'm most excited about this in my sermon. What are the implications of the incarnation? God became man, and maybe you're thinking, you're not going to say it out loud, so what? So what? God became man. Matt Carter in a small commentary on John, does a really good job of listing three things. These things could not be true if Christ did not become man. If the incarnation is not true, these things cannot be true. Here they are. Number one. If Jesus did not become man, he could not be tempted. Right? If Jesus did not become man, he could not be tempted. This is important. Why? Because we know that Jesus, as our perfect advocate, prays for us before the Father as one who can relate to us and sympathize with our weaknesses. Recall Isaiah 53, verse 3. He's a man of sorrows, and he's acquainted with what? Acquainted with grief. Because Jesus became man, he can relate to our pain, our hurt, our suffering. Amen? We're not alone. He knows. He knows what you're going through. He suffered as well. He can relate to you. He can empathize with you. That's incredible. You know, if the incarnation didn't happen, then Hebrews 4.15 can't be true. It can't be. Now think about this. If Jesus didn't become man, then he he didn't truly live a perfect human life. And now the gospel's what? It's lost. Do you realize that? What is the debt we owe God? Christ didn't just die for us. He lived for us. The debt we owe God is a perfect life. Have any of us done that? Is it possible? No, because we have a sin nature. Christ, who is truly man, lived a perfect life for us as one who is truly man. If that didn't happen, guess what? There's no gospel. Number two, if Jesus did not become man, he could not be an example. 
What makes Jesus such a powerful example to be followed is that he took on our frail human flesh, enduring hunger and thirst and the full range of human emotion, and was faithful to the end. Amen? He's faithful to the end. He is the perfect son of man, the perfect man, the second Adam, who shows us what it means to be truly human. And number three, and this is the most important, Again, we're answering the question, so what? God became man. So what? If Jesus did not become man, he could not what? He could not die. Humans die, right? And if he didn't become man, then he couldn't what? He couldn't die. This is by far the most significant implication of the incarnation. If Jesus only appeared to be human and was simply an apparition, then he couldn't die, and we're still in our what? We're still in our sins. Jesus ultimately became man so that he could die. That's why he came. He came to die for our sins. You see, the incarnation answers the two most important questions. These are the two most important questions you'll ever ask. Number one, what is God like? Have you wondered that? What is God like? And number two, how can we know him? There are no questions more important than those, and the incarnation answers both. If you wish to know what God is like, look to who? Look to Jesus. He shows us because he came to reveal God. The Word became flesh, and he was seen. Again, the events of the gospel happened in time and space. Christ came to make God known. What grace, and not only that, but if you wish to know God, not just what he's like, but to know him relationally, then look to who? Look to Jesus. Come to him in faith. For Jesus came to show us God, and Jesus came to bring us into fellowship with God. Oh, time. Can I have five more minutes? Thank you. Okay. You notice I didn't pause and wait. I said, okay, thank you. Let me, let me unpack verse 15, because we haven't looked at verse 15 yet, and it's important. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out. This, this is where John's testimony begins. John the Baptist, right? JB. You've got to distinguish between John the beloved disciple and John the Baptist. So this is where John the Baptist's testimony begins. This was he, he's referring to Jesus, of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Are you confused yet? Good. It is confusing. Can I help you? Please, sure, okay. John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus, and we have access to that witness. question is, what have you done with it? What do we learn about the one John bore witness about? Now, the Old Testament generally supports the notion that rank and honor are tied to one's age. So if you're older, what are you owed? What's inherently true about you? You have rank. You're owed honor. Now here's the kicker. John the Baptist was older than Jesus by how many months? Six months. And he began his ministry before Jesus. And yet, John declares that Jesus ranks before him, meaning that Jesus is superior to him. In John's testimony, we have revealed the superior Son of God who has existed for how long? <laughs> How long? Forever. Amen. 
And then we come to verse 18. We got to get here. This is it. This represents, I think, one of the clearest passages in the Bible supporting the deity of Christ. Is it important that Jesus is fully God? We've already established the importance of him being truly man. Is it important that he's truly God? Of course it is. And if you want support for the deity of Christ, look at verse 18. Jesus, the Son of God, who was at the Father's side. And what do we know about that? His bosom. We talked about that. It's a place of honor and intimacy. Has come to make the Father known. Jesus, who is God, is the ultimate revelation of God. Now, verse 18 represents the end of the prologue of John's gospel. Now, notice how our prologue is framed. Verse 1 and verse 18. How does John begin his gospel? In arche in halagos, ke halagos in prostentheon. I'm not going to do Greek. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, here it is, was God. So out the gate, John wants us to see that the Word Jesus is, he's God. Okay? That's how it's framed. Then we go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Okay? What comes next? The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Whoa! Jesus is? Who is the only God at the Father's side who has made the Father known? Who's he talking about? Jesus. So John wants us to see that Jesus is truly God. In framing his prologue this way, John is preparing us to see that the deity of Jesus is a major theme in his gospel. He wants us to see that the one who lived perfectly, and died sacrificially is truly God. What grace that the creator of all would lay down his life for his rebellious creation. That is what's revealed to us in John's gospel. Let me end with this story, then I'm going to pray. Who has ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse? Why did we leave? Man. I've been to a few And if you ever want to invite me, I'll say yes. (laughs) Here's what I noticed the first time I went. It just kept getting better. I feel like with our table at least, I mean, just maybe the, the, the less expensive cuts of meat were brought around, which I ate all of them. I was so excited about them. And then over time, you're like, wow, this, oh, now they're bringing out the goods. It just kept getting better. I could never afford that. Yes, I want it. My card is green, right? If you have a green card, they keep coming. My car never turned red. They had to uh, drag me out of there. No more. You're done. But I remember my experiences there. Like, it just kept getting better. This is what we see in our passage, if you're paying attention. This is what we see in John 1, 14 to 18. Not only is Christ the greater tabernacle, and not only is Christ the sent one, and not only is Christ full of grace and truth, but Christ is also the ultimate revelation of God. Come to reveal God and make a way to God through his saving work on the cross. Remember, all of these things are revealed to us so that we might behold and believe. Behold and believe. You know, why is Exodus 33 and 34 so amazing? It's because of what happened in 32. Israel commits idolatry against God after he rescues them from slavery. There's nothing more horrible than that. We should be aghast 
when we read those chapters. And yet God in his grace appears to Moses, makes himself known to his people. He pledges to them, I'm going to continue to go before you. Wow. Why is our passage so incredible? Did Jesus come to a world that was welcoming him, that was ready to receive him, waving banners, clearing the runway? No. He came to a world full of darkness, pervaded by sin, a world filled full of rebellion with fists shaking at him. That's who he came to. What grace, what love, what mercy. What have you done with Jesus? God has revealed his glory through his son. He's made himself known. What have you done with him? What have you done with him? Have you trusted in him? Are you following him? You know, not only does Christ come to show us what God is like, not only does Christ come to make a way to God, but Christ sends the Spirit so that we can be like God. Life's marked by holiness and righteousness. Who believes that in Scripture God is revealed? Good. Who believes that when Christ came, he came to reveal God? Hopefully none of you would say that revelation has stopped. Here's what I mean. God gives his church the spirit so that we too can reveal who? God, we're called to be a light. We're called to shine. I want us to be challenged by 1 John 4.12. Listen to the language. Remember John 1.18? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Christ came to reveal the invisible God. Amen? Now listen to 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. Wait, 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 John! You can't borrow from yourself. Yeah, you can. No one has ever seen God. If we, talking about Christians, love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When we, church, who have trusted in Christ and have the Spirit, love and serve each other, we too have the privilege of making the invisible God visible. Amen? So let's do it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the good news That, God, you have revealed yourself ultimately, most beautifully, through your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come to make God known, make a way to God through your life, death, and resurrection, and make your redeemed people like God by giving us the Holy Spirit. And I pray for your church, that we would love each other, that we'd be united, that we'd serve each other, so as to put the invisible God on display before a sinful, dark, and dead world. Father, use the testimony of your church to draw the lost to Christ. And may we boldly proclaim as a church the good news that God has come, he's made himself known, and he's made a way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And for that we say thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said,